Welcome to the Just By My Vote podcast. I am Joseph Simmons, the host and also author of the new book, Just By My Vote, African-American Voting Rights and the Chicago Condition. Before I introduce my guest, for those that are not familiar with the Just By My Vote podcast, I'm proud to say that we launched this podcast on the 4th of July and began a schedule of publishing new episodes every other Wednesday. However, last week we had a bump in our schedule, and from that bump came a couple of benefits. One, we will publish a new episode every week in the month of October, which I'm very excited about. And the second benefit is my guest today. Because of the nature of my book, which covers a fair amount of African-American history in Chicago, the DuSable Museum in Chicago was at the top of my list when I decided to launch this podcast. So I'm honored to have with me today Dr. Kim L. Delaney, Vice President of Education and Programs for the now newly named DuSable Black History Museum and Education Center. Dr. Kim Delaney, welcome to the Just By My Vote podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely, it's my pleasure. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of things that we can talk about in the time we have, but I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, to start by talking a little bit about your namesake for the museum, Jean Baptiste Point du Sable, please. Yeah, so um, John Baptiste Point du Sable is the proper name, but we we say du Sable here in Chicago, most of us. So, um uh, DuSapo was the inspiration uh, for Dr. Burroughs renaming the museum in 1968 during the height of the Black Power Movement. Dr. Burroughs, who created the museum to highlight, to preserve, celebrate, and highlight Black history, thought that it would be um, a great idea to name the museum after DuSapo, who was credited with being the founder of the city. Um, it should be noted that DuSable was of Haitian, supposedly of Haitian and French uh, descent. And um, it's so much to be celebrated about him here. There were people here when he came here, but in the United States, you're given credit for um, founding a city kind of when you found the commercial aspect or industry aspect of a city. And so though there were Native people living uh, on the land here, he created an organized market in this area. So he's credited with being the founder of uh, Chicago. And that greatly impacts the character of uh, Black Chicago, at least. That's the seeding point for Black Chicago. He was known for working well with the people in the area, right? He came in as in true African-centered focus and immersed himself in the culture and in the people. Uh, he married a Native woman, and built, loved and built a family here with a Native woman, which even uh, helped to strengthen uh, his, his business here, actually, you know, and have him be accepted even more in the area. So he's very successful. He had trading posts in multiple places. Um, he built the first kind of what some call a mansion in the area. So when Black people came to Chicago, um, our ancestors came with the understanding that this was a place where if you put the work in, you could 
you could build here. You could build here. You could have a fair, they thought, fair and equitable life. If anywhere, you could have it possibly in Chicago because the precedent had already been set with um, Dusabo. Sure, sure. And and it sounds like eventually uh, there was a rebranding of, is it the Lakeshore Drive that was renamed? Yes. So we had Dusabo High School here. Um, that was that was named uh, for Dusabo back in I think 1930s maybe, and then you had uh, Dusabo Museum, which is important. Uh, that whole legacy and the spirit of that that whole revolutionary spirit to come and just uh, be productive, be productive as I said, and to build. That's very important. And then uh, Lakeshore Drive more recently. Perfect. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that in terms of? I believe it was Margaret Taylor Burroughs. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us yeah. about uh, how that how that came about? What's that? The founding of the museum? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. So Dr. Burroughs, a worldly woman, an educator, an activist, an artist, she collected art in her home on 38th and Michigan. That's where she lives. But she collected art and just displayed it in her home uh, because she was so immersed in the community and, and, and a pillar in the community. Her home was visited uh, by a lot of people and she would have what's called salons, you know, these gatherings in her home. And um, people would ask questions about the art and be curious. Uh, she had traveled to the continent of Africa and uh, was a collector. So people would ask questions about the art, so which made her want to put out more pieces and this, they would be uh, discussion points, discussion starters and things like that. So she recognized that people were very interested in the culture and interested in learning about the pieces and the culture and the art. Uh, and it grew and grew until she realized that uh, the uniqueness of what she was doing and that there was no formal place independent place that was doing that. So she decided to start a museum uh, and she got some friends together and they started the first museum. Um, like I said, first it was in her house, but then uh, she started this museum as we have it now. Interesting. And I understand you're going through a transformation or you corrected me and said a rebranding. Please tell yeah. me about that. Well, we, we rebranded uh, last year. Uh, to the DuSabo Black History Museum and Education Center. And um, our people who lead the museum uh, were of the thought that, uh, which is what we believe, you know, that Black history is connected to people of African descent around the globe. So what, not just limited, you can't really get the fullness of us when we're still in a state of repair in this country and mm -hmm. reclamation and restoration, okay. uh, you can't really get a clear understanding of who we are just by looking at African-Americans. So we're intentional about connecting to the continent of Africa, looking at traditional cultures and to um, all over the world where we find people of African descent um, and in their cultures. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I read also that the museum there is a Smithsonian affiliate. Could you please explain that relationship? 
Yes, that's so interesting to me. Um, like we when we're highlighting because Smithsonian is a bigger museum, it's it's well funded, it's a great museum. It's I I, I find it kind of tickles me when people are like, oh, you associate with Smithsonian, like that's a big <laughs> deal. When it's the big deal that Smithsonian and I are affiliated with each other, there because you go. the Saba Museum is the oldest independent Black History Museum in the country. You know. Uh, uh, with Dr. Burroughs having that foresight. And then Lonnie Bunch was very instrumental in the development of the Smithsonian after National African American Museum that's a part of the Smithsonian. Um, he, I saw an interview with him where he said himself that she was a great, and what her and what she was able to accomplish was the motivation for what he was doing with the Smithsonian. Right. Okay. And so it's 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 just a rightful um, kind of extension and beautiful thing for us to be in partnership with the Smithsonian. So to be an affiliate is to have access to their resources. Like I said, it's a it's a big museum with a lot of resources, financial resources, uh, which uh, yields uh, great access to information and people and data and, uh, you know, historical documents and things of that sort, all of those things that you need money to get. And so we have access to those things. So we're very appreciative of, of that um, connection. Also, sometimes there's themed programming that all of the affiliates are so that we're in kind of in unison with understanding or we're highlighting certain things around the same time. So it's just like being in a trade industry, kind of, you know, being involved in a trade industry or uh, uh, organizations that are specific for um, certain fields. So you've definitely seen benefits. I mean, was there a time when you weren't an affiliate of the Smithsonian? How did that come about? Well, we weren't an affiliate when they started because remember we we already existed. So gotcha. once right. they started, and I wasn't here at the time, so I don't I don't know what the process was to. Okay. But but I do know that it's a natural fit since that was started, inspired by this. Right. So place. it actually helps your function there, huh? Yeah, it's it's always helpful to be in community. It's African. That's what we do. African centeredness is to be in community with other people of similar goals and interests. So, Okay. Yeah. Uh, and then I noticed that there were a couple of functions that you you guys have planned. And I mean, there's this rebranding or transformation really is an expansion into the community? Yeah, we want it to be intentional. I'm a retired professor of African-American studies. That's what I am, African-American studies scholar. When I came over, we were talking about how if you control narratives, then you are responsible for that. You are educating people when you control narratives, right? So we wanted to be intentional about acknowledging uh, that we recognize that responsibility, that we are edu educating people. So uh, it seemed a natural fit to put the title into our name because we're, we are not confused about that. We know that we're educating people. And so... Yeah, so we rebranded to and educational center. We are expanding in that we're offering more by being intentional about the naming. We can expand to offer more um, classes, which museums do a lot anyway. But you know, offer more classes and to structure ourselves 
um, intentionally in a way that aligns with more recognizable uh, in, in, uh, educational institutions. Interesting. Interesting. By the way, you being a African-American history scholar, do you have a favorite source? Favorite source. So, um, yes, because I came through structured educational systems, I understand the need for varied sources. Right. In this in this work of deconstructing and reconstructing narratives and trying to get it right, you need to be tapped into all kinds of sources. So I definitely respect um, uh, academicians and people who publish books and things like that. But I also respect the people themselves in the lived cultures, you know, in the wisdom that's that that are uh, the wisdom that is uh, in kind of trapped in the people who are living the experience, right? So uh, some of my sources include, of course, um, definitely textbooks. You can find great lists out here with all the classics on it and all of the books that are getting attention. In addition to that, uh, I think it's important to be in community with other scholars. That's just from an African-centered perspective. If you're trying to exist in that space, we know we're not it. Like, I'm not the grand pooba of knowledge. So whenever I see people like that, I'm like, oh, they need a little more training because we're a collective and communalism is the main part of African-centered uh, perspectives and understanding. So with that said, I'm a part of communi communities of scholars so that we can bounce ideas of, off each other, share information. One will be the National Council of Black Studies. Okay. Right. And that's all the black studies uh, programs, uh, you know, kind of in the country. That's one source. The other very uh, uh, reliable source I consider it is my good friend, uh, Dr. Greg Carr, has this program that he started with uh, Karen Hunter and it's called uh, In Class with Carr. It comes mm -hmm. on Saturdays. You can watch it on YouTube for free. But he's often touching on... Um, popular topics, you know, hot topics. And he is, his training and his brilliance just helps uh, him to connect those popular topics to this, to the history. And so um, that is very important to me. And so it's almost like a giant class with Dr. Carr and all the resources that he has. And so nice. that's in narrative with the K. And then you can watch In Class with Car. It's free on YouTube, but you can do a little paid subscription. There's a nominal fee to be in narrative. That's important to watch him. Um, there's also um, Asala, right? Asala, which was started by Woodson himself here in Chicago, but that organization still exists. It's, it's history. Um, that's a little different than African-American studies. Which is which is my field. That's history, but that's in, involved in African American studies as well too. So, ASAL is a good organization. So, organizations. There are some listservs, but um, mostly I would say organizations because that's when you hear the conversations about the books and the challenging uh, of um, new information as we attempt to um, deconstruct and reconstruct. Uh, to restore this history with being inclusive of the African experience. Interesting. If I pressed you a little bit on giving us a favorite book, that whether it was your most recent or one that sticks in your memory throughout your studies, what would what would you say? 
Well, a favorite book, my favorite book probably for Black Studies is Marimba Ani. Uh, and what's the name of it? <laughs> I'm old. I'm drawing a blank right now. But <laughs> Yorugu, that's my favorite book because she talks about the Asili, you know, this cultural seed. And that is nothing more. I'm a person who really, because the, the field gets so crowded with so much stuff, you know, and it's, sometimes it sounds like just rhetoric and then the minutia messes it up. When she introduces that concept of the Asili and talks about this cultural seed, it's so powerful for me. That's that's like I'm a core concept person. So it, to me, shaves off all of the extra and we get right to the core of it. So that was that's probably my favorite text. But a current text I'm reading is this book by um, Bettina Love, this new Bettina Love book. And it's so courageous that it is uh, probably... Uh, one that I would recommend right now. And it's not my favorite, but again, it's not. It doesn't knock off your rule, but just the courageousness of her to call a thing a thing and to gather the information and to make it plain. I think she's doing kind of for Black education what uh, the new Jim Crow did for the penal system. You know, it's just doing that. It's making these um, connections and covering up things and showing new iterations of the same old thing. So I think it's pretty powerful. Interesting. Dr. Delaney, where are you from? I'm from Chicago. Oh, you were born and raised in Chicago? Born and raised in Chicago. Why are you here? A little country swag in my voice. Uh-huh. So <laughs> <laughs> My mother's from Alabama. My dad's from Mississippi. But I'm, I was born in Chicago, born and raised in Chicago. Just, just you know, they call Chicago the country up north. And I'm so happily Twangish. Uh, uh, so I actually born and raised in Chicago also. Oh. And when people used to uh, uh, get on the phone with me sometime, they would say, you sound like you're from the South. And right. I would say right. it's from the South side of Chicago. Absolutely. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. But uh, also a, pro- uh, a product of the Great Migration. My dad actually was born and raised in Chicago, but my mother, uh, they came up with that the uh, from Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, and, you know, wow. OK. Family. Yeah. yeah. So that. That's what got me really interested in the Great Migration. Mm. Okay, cool. Well, a lot of people in Chicago are from uh, Alabama or Mississippi. Right. Their parents are, you know. So again, we call it. People call it uh, the country up north, and we we have never sought to shave shake that. We we love it, and we proudly carry forth uh, that heritage. Yeah, I was amazed, actually, in writing about the Great Migration, how much and how many people we had in common, you yeah. know, in terms of that uh, that experience. Mm-hmm. When you said Jackson, Mississippi, I was thinking, I bet his family knows my dad's family. <laughs> that's what happened. You know, it's one degree of separation. You get to talking to somebody, especially if my dad was still living and he would mention something. Somebody mentioned something and they're like, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so's boy. And that's, you know. It's just what it is. It's very communal, that connection is. And it's it's just beautiful. Yeah, it it was that my mother was a part of the Banks family and there were two brothers and three sisters. So I'm sure somebody knows somebody down the line. Right. Yes. How did you wind up at the museum? Uh, I was I came over and did programming like, you know, presentation a couple of times at the museum. But um I was connected to the museum a while ago when it was concerned citizens for the museum, a little committee. 
put together. And we that's when I got more knowledge about the operations of the museum. And later I was asked if I would come to work you know, at the museum. And I couldn't because my responsibilities at uh, Chicago State were so heavy. But when, uh, right before COVID started, re to really get a grip on people, uh, really, um, you know, uh, shake things up, DuSabo needed online programming. So mm -hmm. I came over, I had created the online classes for the African-American Studies Department at Chicago State, and I was running that program. And so, um, I came to help Tusabo and create programming that could be virtual programming during uh, COVID. And then I stayed and the work was so much for, for part-time that it was too much. So I had to make a decision. And then I took early retirement from Chicago State to come over full-time, recognizing that the, the reach for Tusabo was even broader and um, the need for, you know, just clarity and celebration and even safeguarding of the community in the museum culture uh, was there. So I switched over to that lane. Very interesting. Let me ask you one more question in, in the time we have left. What advice would you give to yourself, your 20-year-old self, if you would listen at the time? My 20-year-old self. I would say, I don't know. I, I would say, actually, hurry up and go see those elders before they pass. There you go. Because <laughs> there are a lot of people that I encounter in my research and work. I've met a lot of people over the years, and I've always enjoyed and uh, valued spending time with elders. So my 20-year-old self, I would say, uh, you know, cut out a couple of the parties and go go see the rest of them. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Li li but a lot more listening, right? Yeah, right. Go see the rest of them so I can get firsthand accounts, you know, uh, record it, record it. If you even now for young people and for scholars, if somebody comes in my office to visit me or I encounter somebody, I'm always asking, especially with iPhone, you could just say, hey, do you mind if I record this? Because I want to get firsthand accounts when we rely on. Um, books created even by scholars. We know that's through their filter, right, right? Right. And sometimes things are lost in uh, translation. So to get firsthand accounts from the people themselves about what they think about the thing and what their experience was like, that's invaluable. So yeah, I would say I, I would have did that a little more. And then I would uh, advise people to do that today. Perfect. Well, this has been a real pleasure for me. Uh, Dr. Kim Delaney, thank you so much, and thank you for sharing with our listeners today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, well, we hope you enjoyed that episode of the Just By My Vote podcast. We're looking forward to the next episodes. You can find the book at justbymyvote.com and feel free to follow us at justbymyvotepodcast.com for notification on upcoming podcasts and events. We thank you for the privilege of your time. And until next time, just buy my vote.